Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Infield. Today, I will be speaking with Society of Critical Care Medicine's 2018 president, Jerry Zimmerman, MD, PhD, FCCM, about his presidential address on high-value care, which he presented at the 47th Critical Care Congress in San Antonio, Texas. Dr. Zimmerman works as an attending physician in the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Seattle Children's Hospital in Seattle, Washington. Before we begin, Dr. Zimmerman, do you have any disclosures you wish, wish to share with the audience? Uh, sure. I guess, first of all, I should say that I am sort of a zealot for the topic that we are talking about uh, today. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, seriously, I have uh, uh, obtained research funding from both NIH and Immune Express in Seattle. Uh, I have received uh, royalties uh, from Elsevier Publishing. Uh, because I am edit an editor for the textbook Pediatric Critical Care, and of course I've received travel reimbursement from the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Thanks for sharing that. We are going to be talking about your uh, speech to the 47th Annual Congress in uh, San Antonio, Texas this year uh, that was on high-value care, and I thought it would be great for the listeners if we would start it with you uh, defining high-value care for us um, so that we're all talking from about this on the same page. Sure. So I guess as a good starting place, uh, uh, value is uh, in its simplest form, uh, although this can be much more complex, but value is defined as the ratio of uh, quality uh, to cost. And sort of historically, at least in my experience, everybody is familiar with and committed to uh, the concept of quality, but um, I think most of us have spent uh, much less time uh, thinking uh, about the cost of care that we've uh, provide because we've really uh, never been uh, forced to do that. However, uh, as everyone knows, healthcare costs are exceedingly expensive uh, and critical care is the most uh, expensive. And the point of my uh, presidential address is, of course, there's policy and politics uh, uh, involved uh, uh, around this idea of cost and health care, and it gets uh, uh, very complex. But there's lots of things that we as uh, critical care practitioners, uh, sort of the infantry at the bedside, uh, common sense, grassroots things that we can do uh, to address this uh, uh, cost of care uh, while maintaining uh, quality uh, and safety. And, and I think uh, as critical care practitioners, we should always be thinking about not only quality improvement, quality improving, but also uh, cost lowering. I know that you're a uh background is also in biochemistry, and um, you've been in the area, practicing in critical care medicine for a while. Was there an event or uh, something that you can think of that really prompted you to become, as you define it, a zealot for high-valued care? I don't know if there's a, a specific uh, event, but uh, in my uh, uh, practice of critical care medicine, which now extends over three decades, I just have, you know, repeatedly observed, for example, uh, lab tests. 
that uh, really add no value to the care. For, for example, uh, someone comes in with shock and uh, uh, a lactate is obtained and it's normal and somehow the order continues on the EMR of a uh, serum lactate every four hours and, and this goes on for two days and all these lactate levels are uh, normal because uh, no one has taken the time to taken the time to discontinue the uh, order. Uh, other examples are the uh, daily chest x-rays that we get and uh, how often do we uh, derive from this uh, test uh, something that changes our diagnosis or uh, uh, therapy. Uh, most recently here in Seattle, at Seattle Children's Hospital, one of our fellows uh, became interested in this idea uh, and uh, uh, actually uh, generated some uh, quantitative value uh, regarding uh, uh, repeat lab tests uh, that are obtained uh, in uh, uh, critical care. For example, a very common one is uh, a patient who comes through the I, uh, emergency department and is then admitted uh, to the intensive care unit. Uh, in this setting, it, it's not unusual that a whole litany of lab tests uh, are performed in the ED and then a couple hours later uh, in the uh, intensive uh, care unit. There's other lab tests, uh, for example, liver function uh, tests, BUN, creatinine, uh, you know, that really add no value if uh, obtained uh, more than uh, once daily. So. This fellow looked at all of this and actually identified uh, a number of places where we could uh, uh, avoid repeating lab tests uh, during the day, and, and this was associated with a significant uh, cost uh, savings. So no particular event, but these are just some examples that I have encountered uh, during uh, my clinical practice. That's that's interesting. The the cost savings uh, that you found associated with the laboratory testing, I know that we have in the past struggled when we're trying to uh, describe for our administration uh, something that we want to bring on, uh, and we describe cost savings, and that's sometimes harder for the administration to understand a cost savings as uh, as opposed to. Uh, getting paid for something because calculating the return on investment can be challenging. Um, what strategies do you think are particularly useful in, in helping uh, our hospital administration understand cost savings as a form of uh, value add? Well, I think uh, increasingly as our healthcare system is moving towards these managed uh, care systems, uh, hospitals and uh, providers uh, uh, will be uh, incentivized for paying attention to uh, cost savings uh, and this idea of uh, value. So uh, we may uh, be sort of uh, uh, forced uh, into the situation of thinking about this uh, more uh, critically. I think uh, also, the, the idea of, of value is uh, not only concerned with uh, uh, financial savings that someone uh, eventually has to pay for, but uh, 
excessive uh, lab tests, for example, have other costs, for example, physical risks and emotional risks. Um, uh, one out of every 20 lab tests, uh, statistically speaking, is going to be uh, abnormal just by uh, chance. And if we start, uh, you know, following that uh, false positive uh, lead, that will add to uh, 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 even more cost. Uh, Excessive lab tests uh, uh, that are wasteful are associated with uh, blood loss, risk for uh, anemia, uh, entering uh, that uh, arterial catheter uh, or central venous catheter poses an additional risk of hospital-acquired infection. So there's a lot uh, connected uh, with uh, waste besides uh, just uh, overt uh, cost, and I think uh, having a discussion to make people aware of this uh, is uh, worth the time. In your your speech, you uh, highlighted the Choosing Wisely campaign and some of the, the routine things that we have been encouraged to stop doing, and, and we just talked a little bit about the chest x-ray um, as one of those um, uh, near-sacred cows of the intensive care unit. It has struck me at times that it, some of our colleagues can be very uh, wedded to these uh, concepts and the, these things because it provides them a sense of security that they're, they're doing something for the patient. How do we help them understand uh, better the, the risk associated with these, uh, te the test, the procedures, and also the, the lack of value that some of them add? Um, I guess, how do we help uh, all of our colleagues change at, at a more rapid pace to embrace this idea of high-value care? So uh, you uh, said something there that I, I recall now I, that I said early in my speech, was, which was this idea of just because we can doesn't mean we should. I, I think we, we work in this uh, high-intensity environment in the intensive uh, care unit uh, and increasingly, there are skilled practitioners at the bedside almost, you know, 24-7, 365 in a lot of institutions. So, you know, if someone's worried about something, uh, we can uh, get a chest x-ray. We can get a lab test uh, if it will uh, aid our uh, reasoning, our diagnostic reasoning, uh, uh, or help us arrive at a, a diagnosis or, or, or change what we're doing. Uh, but this idea of just doing this routinely uh, because we are so paranoid uh, that we might miss something is what we've been caught up in. As far as chest x-rays, you know, there was a nice study done uh, uh, back or published uh, in chest back in 2007 and uh, these investigators looked at almost 2,000 daily chest x-rays at, at their institution, and they uh, determined that uh, the uh, diagnostic uh, change in diagnosis and therapeutic uh, change in therapy efficiency of daily chest x-rays was only about 4 and 2 percent, uh, respectively. And eventually, they came to the conclusion that uh, a daily chest X-ray did not affect anything uh, clinically in an adverse way, uh, especially ICU length of stay, uh, risk for readmission or mortality. It didn't affect any of those things. 
but abandoning uh, this daily chest X-ray uh, uh, saved approximately $10,000 per bed uh, per year. So if, if you uh, uh, extend that to uh, other ICUs, multiple ICUs, there's a lot of uh, cost savings uh, that could be uh, uh, realized uh, there. There's other things too, like we now know that, you know, uh, less fluid uh, to our patients, less oxygen, less uh, antibiotics. Uh, all of these things are costly. Uh, in the past, they've been viewed as just being careful, but um, there is a, a risk uh, associated uh, with each of these that is now uh, realized uh, with uh, good data. And uh, I guess in, to answer your question is the best way to convince people to change what they're doing is to provide uh, good data, and increasingly that is uh, available. Yeah, it's been great to see some of the recent studies come out, including the uh, fluid studies showing that over-resuscitation can be as harmful as under-resuscitation, and I'm hoping that that's going to continue to drive this conversation. Uh, one of the things that I'm sure that, that you've seen in your own practice and I know that I see is, is that as we work with trainees, uh, one of the groups that has the most paranoia of getting it wrong is, is our trainees. And I wonder if there's a way that we can change the structure or help them uh, safely practice critical care me medicine without being paranoid about not having the chest x-ray done or not having gotten that one additional lab test. Uh, you're exactly right, and um, what I see in my own practice is uh, the trainees uh, and the docs, uh, the attending physicians, uh, you know, are at the computer and not at the bedside. And uh, I think this is a bad evolution that we need to reverse. Uh, number one, I think we need to go to the bedside and uh, if the patient's uh, uh, toes are warm and uh, pink and the patient is verbalizing uh, and things are looking uh, good and the patient has a palpable dorsalis pedis pulse, uh, why are we uh, pursuing uh, more tests of uh, impaired cardiac output, uh, again, when the last three lactates have all been uh, normal, for example? Uh, attending physicians have to be uh, respectful of their trainees and, and uh, you know, not insist on going over every normal laboratory study on rounds. Uh, that is one of the, um, I think, risk factors that drives this behavior uh, of uh, trainees, you know, not wanting to miss anything. Uh, it's not only the trainees that need to be uh, comfortable uh, with the concept that we don't need to know uh, every fact about every individual every minute. Uh, but uh, if we're worried about something uh, and a laboratory test will help in our uh, thinking about the problem, you know, of course, uh, uh, go after that uh, test. But again, I think as uh, attending physicians, we, uh, you know, should not expect our trainees uh, nor our uh, bedside nurses or, or anyone else to, you know, to, to know every uh, single uh, fact, uh, especially when it's not supported by 
some uh, clinical process that's observable at the bedside. I think it's a great point, and it's a be an interesting corollary to providing high-value care to providing high-value education uh, in our training environment uh, where we don't waste uh, the time that we don't need to but can really focus on making sure that they learn the things that they they need to learn while they're there. You mentioned very early on in your talk something that really caught my ear, but I know you didn't have a lot of time to elaborate on that. That was the relationship between preventing burnout as a form of delivering high-value care. And I wondered if you could spend a few moments elaborating a little bit about that concept, about why burnout uh, and preventing it is a form of high-value care. Uh, Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, maybe overriding all of this, or at least as a uh, infrastructure, if if we're going to practice value, and I'm talking about all of all of us uh, critical care practitioners, we need to start by taking care of ourselves. Uh, And uh, this is in relation to this very high risk of uh, burnout in our profession because of the work environment in which we find ourselves. I really didn't know much about burnout at all until I attended the uh, burnout summit uh, that was uh, Uh, at the uh, University of Northern Illinois uh, last uh, December uh, 2017. And this is a a huge problem that I think a lot of people are not very aware of. Uh, For example, uh, if if we lose a a critical care nurse, this is, first of all, a huge uh, personal uh, emotional tragedy, but there's a big uh, cost ticket also associated uh, with this uh, loss. To uh, replace a, uh, a experienced, qualified nurse who's undergone a lot of training, uh, invested a lot of time, to replace a nurse uh, is about $100,000, and it's even more for a physician. So if you think about uh, the idea that uh, intensive care units might have a personnel turnover of 10 or 20 percent per year. I I think that's not uncommon. And you attach a price tag of $100,000 to each one of those individuals and and then you uh, multiply this times the number of intensive care units that are uh, operating around uh, the United States. This is a huge cost. And, and, and this says nothing, nothing about the magnitude of um, uh, personal uh, uh, loss that's also associated with this. So I think um, in terms of lowering costs, one of the uh, good ways, uh, uh, productive ways of uh, doing this uh, is to uh, think about supporting uh, each other uh, and our role in the ICU uh, and uh, taking care of each other so that we don't burn out. It seems like from my reading that the uh, AACN uh, is ahead of us in thinking about this. What do you think we can learn from some of the other professions in critical care uh, that we can bring back to uh, our colleagues that are um, physicians uh, to help them with burnout? Well, I think there are uh, a number of uh, things we can do. Uh, 
the uh, American Association of uh, Critical Care Nursing, uh, just uh, FYI, uh, is uh, part of the Critical Care Society's collaborative that also includes uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the American uh, uh, Chest uh, Physicians, and the American Thoracic Society. This uh, Critical Care Society's collaborative is actually uh, uh, working together to uh, look at uh, ways that uh, uh, the organizations uh, as a collaborative can impact uh, this uh, problem. This is, this is evolving uh, right uh, now. One of the ways uh, that uh, this is going to happen is uh, by supporting the National Academy of Medicine's uh, efforts uh, in this uh, area. Uh, uh, but uh, one of the other things that certainly will happen is surveying uh, memberships of these four organizations uh, about strategies that have uh, actually worked uh, and for which there might be some uh, quantitative uh, data, again with the idea that if we can uh, present uh, actual data uh, of the impact of an intervention, in this case burnout, uh, then our colleagues may be more interested uh, in listening. But I think there's also just uh, some uh, important things that we should think about uh, in our role as critical care pr uh, providers. One is just acting professional, and this is being accountable, being respectful of everyone that we work with on the team, uh, and then providing uh, uh, leadership as a, a team leader or engagement as a team player. Uh, it is important that we think about removing this negative stigma that's associated uh, with burnout. Uh, there are some practical things like getting enough sleep, getting some physical exercise. There's actually pretty good evidence that both of those uh, reduce the risk of uh, burnout. Uh, if we're having problems uh, ourselves, we need to be not so proud uh, as to not ask for help from others. Uh, if we have ways that uh, work in terms of uh, wellness, we should use them, uh, whatever works. And then there's bigger issues like getting uh, healthcare professional input into redesign of the uh, electronic medical record. This is always uh, a huge uh, concern by almost everyone uh, in terms of their uh, uh, risks for burnout, the frustration associated with the electronic medical record number, electronic medical record. And then uh, we need to look with our uh, administrators about how ICUs are staffed, especially consecutive days of clinical work, uh, constant stress. Uh, this is probably the number one risk factor that is most often cited as a risk for uh, burnout. That's a very complex issue uh, that needs uh, a lot of uh, uh, input by smart people. And then at least, uh, I just would say one more thing. In, in my own experience, I think it's important for people who work in critical care uh, to find alternative uh, activities. 
other than just uh, clinical care, and this might be administration, it might be uh, anesthesiology, uh, it might be a clinic, it might be teaching, or it might be engagement in research uh, or quality improvement. I think doing something else uh, related to critical care, but not constant uh, clinical care uh, is a, a strategy uh, to uh, change what you're doing uh, in the moment uh, and uh, re reduce the risk of burnout. So there's big ticket items there that I talked about that are complex, but there are also some common sense things that uh, all of us can do to uh, reduce our risk. Thank you for sharing all those. Uh, I think that we can all take something from that and our institutions can take something from that as well. One other question that I had that has come up for me recently is, is we've been interviewing fellows and, and, and talking to uh, junior faculty by institution, breaking into the area of doing uh, research in the area of high value care or quality improvement is increasingly something which people are interested in. What advice do, would you have to a, a young faculty member or a, a new fellow who wants to get into this line of research questioning uh, about how to move forward with it? Uh, sure, that's, uh, that's an important comment and, and question. My background is uh, you know, initially in uh, basic uh, science uh, biochemistry, uh, and it, it's still important to uh, generate these uh, uh, physician scientist uh, to uh, identify uh, new uh, therapy and to help understand critical illness. But in my own uh, experience uh, with uh, fellowship programs here in Seattle and then back in Madison, Wisconsin, I have observed that uh, fellows who uh, are trained in uh, epidemiology or public health and learn how to, to manipulate and analyze large data sets uh, have or obtain a very important skill set. Uh, and that's, I think, where the money is in terms of uh, value. Uh, if uh, trainees are interested in this concept, I think um, uh, getting additional education uh, in uh, uh, epidemiology, uh, public health, and learning how to use these large data sets, particularly uh, with respect to cost analysis, uh, would be a good way to go. This field is wide open and it's uh, ripe uh, for the taking for those who are interested. That's great, and I hope it'll give some new people some great ideas of where to go from here and to help them along the way. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, and uh, I look forward to seeing all the things you do with your SECM presidency. Before we sign off, I just wanted to give you a chance to share your biggest hope and goal for the SECM this year. Uh, sure, uh, and uh, this may be a little Pollyanna, but uh, I, I really hope that uh, uh, as an organization, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and, and me personally as uh, uh, one of its representatives can continue to convey this uh, excitement uh, and uh, even wonder and uh, for sure fulfillment of practicing uh, critical care medicine. 
this idea of getting away from the computer and spending more time at the bedside with the patient and the family. This, this is why uh, we go into this field. Uh, it's interesting, it's fun, and we daily can see that we make uh, a difference. So uh, I think this idea of the right care right now uh, with the multidisciplinary uh, team uh, at the bedside uh, instilling uh, this uh, notion of the fun uh, of uh, being involved in critical care medicine is uh, really uh, important. If we can get uh, young people uh, engaged uh, uh, locally in their hospital, uh, nationally, and particularly within the society, I think uh, we will be in uh, good uh, shape as we continue to consider our strategy for the future. Well, with that and uh, my enthusiasm for critical care being renewed, I want to thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Kyle Enfield. Kyle Enfield, MD. Kyle Enfield, MD, is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.